In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the, ho- the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of the Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. As Christina just prayed, we are in the Advent season. Pop quiz, what does the word Advent mean? What? It does not mean waiting. Arrival or the coming of Jesus. It is the season in which we experience waiting. But Advent means arrival, coming. So Christ's, his first Advent took place 2,000 years ago. We are still waiting for his second Advent. So it means the coming, the the arrival of the Messiah. And this is this four-week period where we wait in expectation uh, and uh, hope for Jesus uh, to arrive in our lives in his own ways and in fresh ways. Um, Last week, we looked at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, a couple who had been waiting for a long time. And we talked about the fact that uh, often uh, life involves waiting. We're part of God's grand story and it takes place in his timing. And sometimes that involves waiting faithfully for him. And yet Emmanuel comes to those who are waiting uh, faithfully. Uh, Today, I want to look at um, the story of Mary, but not just Mary. I want to look at the story of Mary and Elizabeth and look at them together uh, and see what I I think these these two people represent in their own ways, um, disappointment and shame on the one hand, and then a a level of insignificance and powerlessness. And yet, yet 
Emmanuel came to these women in, the, in that place in this beautiful way. And so we're going to talk about today the fact that Emmanuel often enters our lives in those places of brokenness and uh, inadequacy and failure. That's where he loves to do his work. So, uh, you know, we're most, uh, most of us are familiar with the story of, of Mary and the angel, right? Beginning in verse 26. But I was really struck by the encounter of Mary and Elizabeth together, uh, beginning in verse 39. So I want to I want to think more about that encounter today and what that must have represented and meant for them. Um, we have an Advent book at home, Carrie and I do, and uh, we take our girls through the Advent book. And this is the picture of the encounter between Elizabeth, of course, on the right, and Mary on the left. And I love that depiction. These two women, uh, relatives of one another coming together in the most unlikely of events, um, marveling together about what God is up to in their lives. And I, I think it's such a compelling scene that often kind of gets passed over in the, in the Christmas store. And so I want to talk about it. I think there's so much going on here about who God is, about what the gospel is. And so I want us today to consider this encounter as a way of considering um, how God loves to work in our world and in our own lives today. So I want to talk about each of these women for a moment, uh, and then we'll look at the encounter and just think about this. So let's start with Elizabeth. Uh, here's the picture I showed you last week of her and her husband, Zachariah. And uh, obviously many of you were here last week, um, but if, if you weren't, what I was saying is that Elizabeth had gone through a profound experience of both disappointment and shame. So let me, let me read it to you again. Go back to verse 1. This is just, for most of you, a reminder. This is the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, verse 5, did I say that? Verse 5. Uh, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. That's a great heritage for both of them. Uh, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But here's the point. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And so they've had this experience of waiting for decades and decades for a child that never came into their lives. And I said last week that for Elizabeth, for both of them, but especially for Elizabeth, this was first a, an experience of, of deep disappointment um, to have this longing for family, especially in the first century Jewish culture where, where family is everything, to have this deep longing and for that longing to go unfulfilled, to have these prayers go up to God year after year after year and get nothing but silence and to experience the deep disappointment of that. But we talked about how it wasn't just disappointment, but something even deeper. There was an experience of, of shame. She uses the word disgrace. There would have been, a, again, in her context, this maybe a personal shame. There would have been so much wrapped up in a, in a woman's identity in the first century Jewish culture to be a mom and to have family and for her, um, for, for her not to be able to express that identity in any sort of traditional way would have felt personally shameful and, and challenging. And, of course, and socially as well, that would have had all sorts of social implications. You know, to be a young married couple, to watch other friends of theirs married at the same time, and then to watch these children being born and these children growing up in the different stages of growth through the years. And then these kids, by this time, these kids having grandkids of their own and having to watch that and experience just the, the social, um, cultural dynamics of all of that. So this experience of, of disappointment and shame, and I imagine resignation at this point in her, in her journey. And so I just think it's fascinating that... Uh, that, you know, God could have chosen any woman 
to be the mother of John the Baptist. And he intentionally chooses this woman who is now old and has gone through this experience of, of great disappointment and shame in her life. And God intentionally chooses her to be the mo- mother of, of this great prophet, John the Baptist. So that's, that's Elizabeth. We looked at her last week. And now let's think about Mary for a bit. Here's an image that I love of Mary. This is a depiction of her. Of course, the angel Gabriel is that column of light uh, being depicted there on the left-hand side. Uh, Mary had not experienced, I don't think, shame and disappointment in life. But I do think that Mary was a picture of insignificance and even powerlessness. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, Let me read again verse 26, right? This is verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now, a couple of things to note about that. You could easily pass right over that. First, the location uh, of where she lives is the town of Nazareth. Now, where is Nazareth? Uh, Nazareth is about like 10 miles, let's see, from you, uh, southwest of the Sea of Galilee in the hill country. That's one, that's a precise answer to where's Nazareth. A less precise answer to where's Nazareth, the answer is Nazareth is nowhere. (laughs) Nazareth is in the middle of nowhere. Nazareth is a nowhere town. It is utterly insignificant. It is, it's, it's a, it barely makes it on the map. Not only is it insignificant, but it's a town that has, it's kind of a despised place. It doesn't have a good reputation. So in like, in John's gospel, when uh, the disciple Nathaniel hears that, hey, we think the prophet's come. He's from Nazareth. Remember what Nathaniel says? Nazareth, right? Can anything, can anything good come out of that place? Right? So there's, there is a first century reputation of like, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. The place is, it's despised. It's insignificant. It's, it's, it's nothing. And this is where Mary is. She's in nowhere, <laughs> completely insignificant. Um, total contrast to last week, right? Last week, Gabriel appears to Zechariah where? In the temple, right? In the temple of God in Jerusalem, in the holy place of the temple, the most you know, holy place in the world where you would expect an angel to show up to a priest is the kind of person you'd expect an angel to show up to. He shows up in the most holy place on earth. And now he's showing up where you at least expect him in the middle of nowhere, this little podunk town called Nazareth. All right. So that's where she's from. Uh, What I noticed also this week is uh, she's just described as a virgin pledged to be married, meaning her lineage is not given. Okay. So there's four characters in, in this story. You have Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary, and Joseph. The other three, their lineage, their heritage is all mentioned. Mary's is not. She has a heritage. She has lineage. But Luke just leaves it out as if to say she kind of comes from nowhere. I mean, it's, she's not given any significance to the importance of who she is. She comes from nowhere. She's kind of a nobody, really. She just comes out of nowhere for us. Uh, and then he's, she's also described as a virgin, Right? And um, which would be a, a young woman of uh, meritable age in that day, obviously, um, who um, is still a virgin. So I, I want to I get inside of that a little bit today and think about um, culturally what, who Mary probably was. And most scholars would suggest she was probably 12 to 14 years old. All right. So she's young. Some of you have 12 to 14 year olds at your home living with you. 
Um, so she's probably that age. I want to read to you from a commentary that kind of gets at first century Jewish marriage practices. And even the language will feel like you'll get a, you're going to be kind of introduced to a culture that feels very different than ours. Okay, let me just read a couple sentences. Uh, marriage for a female usually took place before she reached 12 and a half years of age. That probably at least being uh, engaged. Okay, listen to this language. This was advantageous for her husband, who thus received the benefits of her service over a longer period of time. Okay? This is, this is, this is the culture. So my guess is Joseph is probably considerably older than Mary. Culturally, I would guess that's probably true. Let's put him in his mid-20s, let's say. She's, yeah, I mean, I don't know, but that would be probably true. So, sorry. Uh, benefits, uh, her service over a long period of time, but it's also beneficial for the girl's father. Practically speaking, he was able to more, eas- uh, more easily to guarantee his daughter's purity, i.e. virginity, if he could arrange for her to be married by the time she reached puberty. A marriage was constituted by the drawing up of a deed, the exchange of money to the to the groom, i.e., the, the bride, the bridal price. Uh, the legal transaction initiated a 12-month betrothal period during which bride and groom were legally joined, but during which the daughter remained in her father's house and under his control. Okay, so that that kind of gives you a flavor for what it would be like to be married. This 12 and a half year old betrothed person still living, living under her father's house. So all that to say, on, on the first century status level, she measures low pretty much on every account, okay? In terms of her age, her gender, uh, her location, where she lives, and I would add her, her uh, financial status. We're going to find out that Mary and Joseph are a poor couple. And we find that out because they go to dedicate Jesus at the temple and they offer a sacrifice for him. And in the Old Testament, the Old Testament says, when you have your firstborn kid, offer this sacrifice. If you're poor, you can offer this kind of sacrifice. And they offer this kind of sacrifice. So all that to say, she measures low on all the first century status markers. She is a nobody growing up in nowheresville, okay, from nowhere with very little power um, or status, right? She is insignificant. Now, she is powerless in her culture. And again, God could have chosen anybody he wanted to, right? For the Messiah, the great king to finally come into the world, he could have chosen any woman and he chooses this nobody, really. I mean, from those days standards. And look at the greeting that this nobody receives. Look at verse 28. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Okay, that's how you greet royalty, right? And the angel Gabriel comes to this 12-year-old girl. You are highly favored. Zechariah the priest did not get that kind, of, that kind of greeting. And yet this young girl gets that wonderful greeting. And then she hears this amazing message, this miraculous message. The heart of the message, we won't focus as much on this today, but the, the heart of the message is you are going to give birth to what the angel describes as the son of God. You're going to be the mother of one who is called the son of God. And let me just tell you, that phrase, son of God, will mean two things. Um, Let me suggest, here's what it would first off mean to Mary. When she hears son of God as a first century Jewish woman, she would hear Messiah. Son of God means Messiah, the king, the anointed one, the one we've been waiting for. Okay, look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Why will he be called that? 
Because the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The kings of Israel were known as the sons of God. David himself, God said, I I will be a father to him. He will be my son. And the line of kings are the lines of sons. And so Mary would hear in this, you're going to give birth to that king whose kingdom will never end. You're going to be the mother of the king. That's what it means for him to be the son of God. Uh, And then she discovers that son of God means something even more significant than that, uh, if that's possible for Mary. And it means he's going to be called the son of God because God's going to be his father. (laughs) Look at what he says in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the son of God. Seeing the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit who in the very beginning of time... Genesis 1, 2 says, was hovering over the waters, right? The chaos and then brought, brought life and, and order out of chaos and created the universe. That same spirit is going to overshadow you and bring life, bring supernatural God life in you. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to find out. He's going to be called the son of God. Why? Because he will have no biological father. He will have no biological father. You're the mom and God's the dad, <laughs> take that in. <laughs> You're the mom and God's the dad of this son. So he'll be called the son of God. That's a lot to take in for a 12 and a half year old Jewish girl. I mean, just imagine being her. Who, who, what, like, who am I? What is, what is happening right now? She responds, um, first off with a question. Look at verse 34. She says, before he tells her how this is going to happen, she says, how, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin, like, how is this possible? And her response is, is contrasted with Zachariah's response. Remember last week, Zachariah's response was, um, how can I be sure of this, Gabriel? Like, you're saying these things, they seem pretty incredible. So I, how can I be sure? Give me a sign. Show me something right now that I can look at that will guarantee what you're saying. So it's a prideful uh, statement. Hers contrast. She's not, she's not going there. She's just like, help me understand. Like, this is pretty crazy. How will this be? It's actually an, exp- it's not, it's an expression of faith. She doesn't demand a sign, all that to say. Um, I love that the angel actually gives her a sign anyways. The sign is the sign of Elizabeth. He says, here's a sign. Your relative Elizabeth is pregnant. Wow. And then she responds, this most famous of responses. Look at verse 38. I love this. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. We'll give it one more chance. Nice. I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word be to me, uh, may your word to me be fulfilled. Such a great expression of faith. I'm, I'm your servant. I don't totally get this, but I'm, I'm your servant. I, I'm in for this. And, and she has no idea, right, what this will entail for the rest of her life. There's no way she could know that. Um, but she doesn't have to know all that. She's in. Her, her posture is one that she, she's ready. She's going to face whatever comes, and she does. She's faithful um, to that. So there you have these two uh, women. And then, then Mary sets off at, at verse 39. She sets off and heads down. She's like, I got to see this. So she heads down south to be with her relative Elizabeth. Now that, um, that journey is about a maybe 70-mile journey. So that would take a couple days for her. Um, but imagine just, I mean, what was that journey on the road thinking, oh my goodness, what can all this mean? And, and <laughs> This is crazy, and I'm going to go see my relative. And she shows up at, a, at Elizabeth's house, 
And let's just put Elizabeth at 75, okay? Some of you are 75 in this room. All right, let's just put her there. She, she shows up, and this 75-year-old woman is six months showing of pregnancy. And this 12-and-a-half-year-old is not showing yet, but she's been given this message. And you have these two women coming together in this great encounter, right? The older and the younger. Oh, my goodness. This is crazy. Uh, here's another picture of it. Uh, these two uh, miracle pregnancies, right? The one on the right is a, uh, a, a pregnancy through natural means, but takes place when it is way after it is naturally possible. And then the second pregnancy, of course, uh, a supernatural pregnancy where God himself um, creates a miracle of life within her. And you think of the two uh, sons that are contained in their wombs. On the right hand, again, of course, you have John the Baptist, the great prophet, the one who would come before the Messiah and prepare the way, filled with the Spirit uh, even before birth, uh, it says to Zechariah. And then, of course, on the left, you have Jesus, the great King himself, uh, the Son of God, whose Father is God. Um, Amazing. And, of course, in the story, even in the womb, they're fulfilling their roles, right? Um, little John the Baptist prophesies and jumps in the womb at the, at the coming of Jesus the Messiah. He's already doing his thing before he comes out of the womb. And Elizabeth marvels at this, and she's filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is all over this, this passage. But we're focusing today on these two women, okay? One who had experienced on the right-hand side, who had experienced such disappointment and shame for so many years, And the other on the left-hand side uh, who had experienced insignificance, powerlessness in in the culture of her day. These two women being brought into the very center of God's plan. Being raised up as these very key figures in God's grand story of salvation. And they must have been going, oh my gosh, who are we? This is crazy. We can't believe this is happening. Uh, There's a word that... uh, that Elizabeth uses that, that hit me this week that feels very um, fitting here. In verse 43, take a look at verse 43. She says, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And that, that word favor and that question, I think that's what they were feeling. Like, wh- how is it that I am so favored? God's favor is being shown to these women. And I went back and looked at the story, and that word pops up four different times in my, my translation. Let me just show them to you. Um, this was back when Elizabeth first finds out that she's going to have John the Baptist. In these days, God has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace. Uh, this is then the angel Gabriel to Mary. Greetings, you who are highly favored. And again, Gabriel, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And then finally, this, this passage here. Why am I so favored? that their mother of my Lord should come to me. God's favor is all over this story, right? His unexpected, undeserved grace and favor and blessing. Where there was shame and disappointment, there is now favor. Where there was insignificance and powerlessness, there is now God's unexpected favor. And Mary then, out of this this encounter, um, Mary sings a song. 
in verse 46. And I want to read you the song today. Um, We know it as the Magnificat. Some of us would know that at least. Uh, Last week we saw Zachariah's song in uh, verse 67 known as the Benedictus. Uh, But this is Mary's song. Luke loves to record these songs of Christmas. Let me read to you this song. It is a song of God's favor on one who did not expect to receive it in the way she has. Verse 46, and Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from one generation to another. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. It's a song of God's favor. A little tidbit for you. Look at verse 56. Um, This is an aside. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. So she shows up when she's six months pregnant. She leaves at three months later. So most likely, I would guess Mary was present for the birth of John the Baptist, which I had never thought of till this week. But that's probably why she sticks around (laughs) to see the birth of this this son. But let's look at this song. I want to point out a couple things about this song. It is a song of favor unexpected favor. And it breaks down into two sections. First, Mary starts with very personal things about what God has done personally in her life through this event. I look at verse 48. I love this. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Okay. She's not saying God sees how humble I am. Like I've got a humble heart and God noticed that. Like it's not that kind of humble. When she says my humble state, she's referring to her status. Like, my lowly state. Like, I'm a nobody. I know this. I'm poor. I'm insecure. I'm a nobody. I could go so unnoticed in the Roman Empire. But God notices me. God has been mindful of a person who others would maybe not be mindful of in the cultural context in which I find myself. The mighty one has done great things. I love that. I'm small. He's mighty. But the mighty one has done great things. And he has completely reversed her status, right? From now on, all generations will call me blessed. I was nothing, and now I am blessed. It's this reversal of fortunes, this reversal of status because of the favor of God. And then she, she goes from the personal, and then she extrapolates to what God is doing in the world in general. What God did in hers is the exact way he loves to work in this world. And I don't know if you picked it up, but she articulates three reversals that God is about in the world, ways he likes to overturn the world's ways of thinking. Let me, I put them up on, on the screen just so you can see them. Here's the first one. He scatters those who are proud in their thoughts, but his mercy extends to those who fear him. To the proud, they're scattered, but to the, those who fear appropriately, there's a humility and they fear, he's merciful. It's, a, it's an overturning. Uh, He sends the rich away empty, but he fills the hungry with good things. Third one, he brings down rulers from their thrones, but he lifts up the humble. God is at work in the world, Mary says, just as he is with me. He's at work in the world in general, 
overturning the usual way of things. He is bringing favor to the humble, to the broken, to the hungry, to the needy, to the powerless. And on the other hand, he is scattering, he is dethroning, he is humbling the proud and the powerful. Okay? This is what he's about in the world. But there's, there's an edge to this. There's a, this, is, there's, this is a subversive kind of message that, Jesus, that, that Mary is communicating. This is what God likes to do in the world. And if you think about it, this song itself and is, is an example of the way God likes to do this. Okay, so think about this. Um, Mary's song comes before Zechariah's song in Luke's gospel. And that is not what you would expect. The story starts with Zechariah, okay? This great, venerated, aged male priest would have been very respected in that day, would have had a lot of power and status in that day, even though without his family. But just being that, there'd be status. He receives the message of the angel first, but he responds with a lack of faith, and he is silenced by the angel for nine months. Mary, this 12-and-a-half-year-old nobody girl, responds with great faith. She's favored, and her song comes first. The 12-year-old girl gets the first word before the venerated priest of God in the temple. Okay? Already that story is taking place, even in the Christmas story. And if you've been paying attention all fall, you'll realize this is not a new theme. Right? We've been looking at this theme. This theme runs straight through Luke's narrative. What God is up to with the poor and the needy and the broken. And what he's up to in humbling those who think they're powerful and those who are proud. Right? Jesus coming out statement in Nazareth. He shows up in in Nazareth. He takes the the prophet Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. What's he anointed me to do? To preach good news to the poor, right? Recovery of sight for the blind. To release prisoners, right? The year of the Lord's favor on all those who would be unfavored in society. His first major sermon, chapter 6, begins with blessings on the people that are low in status. Blessed are you who are poor, right? Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who are hungry. And woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed. Woe to you who laugh now. This reversal of fortunes, (coughs) excuse me, humbling the proud and bringing his favor uh, to the humble. Paul says it beautifully in 1 Corinthians. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, even Nazareth, uh, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. He loves to show his favor on behalf of the broken and the needy so that nobody may boast about themselves, but that all can boast simply in who the Lord is. And his dethroning the powerful and the proud, that doesn't have to be his last word to them. That can be for their own good, okay? It's not that he's against those people. Zechariah himself is an example. In his pride, he was silenced, right? He was dethroned, but he was dethroned for his own good. He repented of that, and it, it brought a, a deeper relationship with God. So he's not against these people. He just wants to do something in their lives so that they too may not boast before him. And I say all that because, of course, these two women are this beautiful picture of God bringing favor on unlikely people and raising them up as part of his grand plan. All right, so that's the story. Let me just leave you with a thought, which is this, that um, 
that if, if this is what Emmanuel is up to in the world, if this is the way he loves to operate in the world, then um, we might need to rethink our relationship with him a bit. We might need to rethink the posture that we take with him and even with others a bit. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Um, we all are living our lives with these areas of pain, right? We talked about some of that in the last couple of weeks, but there's these areas of pain um, and they can come in different forms. It might be areas of disappointment, just like Elizabeth, these deep disappointments with the way our lives have gone or even disappointment with ourselves, disappointment with God, um, or even shame, these places of shame and, and guilt. Uh, or they may just be places of, of insignificance where we feel inadequate or we feel unseen or unheard by others. We feel powerless. We feel vulnerable, um, broken. Uh, we work really hard in life to either hide those things or to cover those things or to try to fix those things, right? I mean, we do a lot of work. We do a lot of emotional work. We do a lot of uh, relational social work. We do a lot of work on social media. All these things to try to cover and hide these things. We try to project strength, right? Competency, happiness. We do that to others. We do that to God. We do that even to ourselves. Um, But if God is who we've seen him to be in this passage and throughout Luke, then the reality is those places of pain and inadequacy are precisely the places that God is longing to enter in and bring his favor and his grace. Right? Those places that we so much want to keep from him and hide from him and from ourselves and from others, those are the very places where he just longs to move and to be present with us, for us to experience him. He's, he's this subversive, upside-down God who wants to do things in that way. And so for me, I mean, for all of us, but just to speak personally, for me, I've got areas in my life and, that feel like my greatest liabilities, right? Like there's certain things like, these are the things I least like about myself. These are the things I would most like to change about myself. And to begin to think those liabilities that I experienced, those might be some of the greatest opportunities I actually have to experience God's grace and favor in a way that I wouldn't otherwise experience because God, he loves to exalt himself in human weakness and human limitations. That's what he loves to do. So the question is, what, what would it look like to maybe rethink how I think about my own brokenness, my own pain, my own limitations? Um, let me leave you with an image um, that comes from the Apostle Paul. I think it kind of brings this together nicely. Um, you know the Apostle Paul. Um, the Apostle Paul was a very strong man. He was competent. He was wise. He was learned. He was successful in a lot of ways. Um, but God brought a weakness into his life, a vulnerability, a deficiency. And we don't know what it was. He calls it the, a thorn in his flesh. Um, so we don't know exactly what the thing was, but Paul hated it. <laughs> he did not like it. He wanted it to go away. He pleaded with Jesus many times, would you please take this thing away? I don't like this. I want you to fix this. I, this, I don't like this about my life. And Jesus' response to him was, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Um, because I want you to learn something that you won't learn as strong Paul. What I want you to learn is this. My grace is sufficient for you. My favor on you, even in your broken place, is enough. It's it's good. My power is made perfect precisely in weakness. 
I love to move into places of weakness and insignificance and shame and bring my grace and favor and power. And Paul had to totally rethink how he thought about his weaknesses. And he did, to his credit. And he came out and, and he was able to say, you know what? Not only do I accept this, but I actually, I have gone from wanting to change this to boasting. He says, I will boast about my weaknesses now. This thing that I consider a liability, it is an asset to me because when I am weak, then I am strong, he says. Meaning, in my weakness, God's strength is shown. And so rather than try to fix it and do everything I can to stop it, that has become this window to experience God's grace and his power in my life. So now I I actually, I lean into it. I boast about it. I think it's great (laughs) because when I'm weak, I'm strong. So the image that he gives us is this image of jars of clay. And I know many of you have heard that. We're, we're these jars of clay. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, we have this treasure. The treasure is, is basically Jesus, Emmanuel, the, the good news, the gospel message. We, we get to receive this treasure, but we have it in jars of clay, these broken vessels, fragile, cracks showing, not impressive. And it's this way to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God wants to reveal his power, and the best way he can do that is in these places of vulnerability and weakness. And just to go back to this image one last time, I mean, what a beautiful picture of jars of clay. These two vessels, each containing this amazing treasure, right, within them, and yet these ordinary, um, broken, powerless people containing this great treasure, um, but jars of clay. And marveling that we, these jars of clay, could be brought into and to receive this. This is what God is doing in them is precisely what he wants to do in every single person. This is what Emmanuel means. He wants to be this treasure in these jars of clay. So I leave you with that question. And we're going to have time to process it a little bit more uh, during communion. But as we, you know, move through this Christmas season, what would it look like? to say, Lord, I want to experience you, not just in my joy and in the fun and strengths of the Christmas season, but what would it look like to experience you in my brokenness, in my weakness? And maybe those are precisely the places where you're longing to do a new and fresh work for me. So how can I open that up to you rather than hide it from you or try to fix it for you? So let's pray, and then we'll spend some time letting Jesus minister to us through communion. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it's such a consistent theme in Scripture that you are this God who just delights in working in unexpected ways and and through uh, the parts of us that we would rather change. And yet that's where you tend to show up, um, where we feel our status is low or we feel shame or brokenness or powerlessness. That's where you tend to work, your deepest work. And so um, this Christmas, may this be a season where we receive the gift of Emmanuel again. Um, Not as our curated, cleaned up selves, but as our actual selves with all of our limitations and inadequacies. Lord, even now, as we uh, partake, as we celebrate communion, may this, this be a time where you minister to our hearts, where you enter in again. Uh, with your favor and your grace and your 
your goodness and kindness to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.